Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans episode 92 with the donut princess herself, Mei Li Tao, owner of the Case Donuts and Bakery and the Donut Princess LA. This is our second episode this week. Uh, we took last week off for New Year's, so we are doubling up. So this is episode 92, uh, marching our way to celebrating 100 episodes of Asian American storytelling on March 2nd. It is Friday, January 8th. So it's been a long week for us here in America. Um, hope you're staying safe and hope you're staying well uh, physically and emotionally and mentally. Um, check in with a friend if you want somebody to talk to and reach out to us if you want to chat. Um, and we shared this photo on our Instagram yesterday, but big shout out to Congressman Andy Kim um, for doing what we should be doing, what all of us should be doing as leaders um, without the need or the desire for spotlight, but just doing what's right. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, Fellow Congress people and photographers found uh, Congressman Andy Kim from New Jersey uh, picking up debris and trash that the domestic terrorists left in the Capitol Rotunda. So um, really proud uh, of you, Congressman Andy Kim. If you're listening to us, thank you. Um, come on and share your story here as well. We invite you. Welcome anytime. Um, really excited to share this story with May Lee, uh, who as, as children, as a child, as a daughter of uh, immigrants and refugees uh, in the donut business, has really taken the family business and made it something completely new and innovative and exciting, and has also worked on sharing her uncle's story. So we'll hear about the Donut uh, King movie. Uh, check it out at donutkingmovie.com. If you are in Los Angeles, head over to Santa Monica Boulevard and 16th Street, where you will find some amazing donuts at DK's Donuts. We had some ourselves here in the Juan household two weeks ago. Always delicious, always amazing. Uh, thank you, Maylee, for making time. And to everybody else, we're always wishing you uh, health and safety and happiness this weekend and beyond and wishing you an amazing and fruitful and uh, just healthy 2021. Thanks again for tuning in. And here now is my conversation with Maylee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Uh, whenever you are listening to this, and I think it's going to be 2021 when you're listening to this. So happy new year. Um, I guess it may not be the new year that you celebrate or some of us celebrate. So in either case, 2020 is behind us. Um, we're hopefully headed towards more sane federal government employees, more sane healthcare policies, and just more positive outlook for all of us. You know, most of us, are you know descendants of immigrants, refugees, and when our parents come here, whether it is by choice or not, you know they have worked their tail off to provide a future for us. And oftentimes, we don't know what that future looks like. And a lot of the times, they've given up whatever their dreams or their professions were back home to try to make it in this foreign country. And I don't think we fully realize those of us you know who have spent the majority or all of our lives here what that actually entails. You know, I'm 37 and I often think about what if I had to go to a foreign country where I don't speak the language and had to start from zero, like with two kids, like that's insane. But our parents did it. Our uncles, they all did it. And some of us and some of them have done far more than that. They've brought entire communities along. They've, you know, taken care of entire extended families. And, and so, you know, my guest today tells that story of somebody who has taken an entire community, an entire group of people and uplifted them in a way and in a story that we've actually never told or shared. And, and so, you know, this story is about this interview and this episode is about Meili, but it is far bigger than that. It is paying homage to the entire community and particularly uh, to her uncle. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with Meili and learn what growing up as Maylee was like, what life was like for her growing up, what she wanted to be. And for a lot of us and for many of us who may be struggling with this duality of, do I chart my own path the way I want to do it? And how much time, energy, love do I give to my parents' business that they're sort of not saying, but you know that they're expecting you to at least think about taking it over. And how do we make it our own? And so it brings me much pleasure to have and introduce Maylee Tao on the show. Hi, Maylee. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And just to add about New Year's, I celebrate three New Year's. <laughs> My background is Chinese, Cambodian, Thai, and I'm American. So I know a lot of you out there have multiple New Year's as well. So happy New Year to guys. <laughs> happy New Year. You know, it's, it's funny because I think the, the construct of holidays and the construct of traditions are very, it's, it's all man-made, right? It just depends 
how long ago and, and who created it and, and what we start, um, you know, and it is, I think, uh, kind of, you know, appropriate for us as Asian Americans to really honor both and all, you know, Absolutely. Um, it's really funny. Yeah, I, I have a mentor, Scott and Karen, if you're listening, hello, you know, they send their holiday cards in January mm-hmm. because it's not a Christmas or a Gregorian calendar New Year's card. It's a Chinese New Year's card. The very first time I got it, my first thought was, why are they late? Why, <laughs> why are you send this after New Year's? And then I opened it and I was like, oh, and it was awesome, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, it just reminded me. And now I expect it after the holiday, you know, so it was so nice. And I think, you know, so whatever holiday you celebrate and, and however you celebrate it, we just care that you probably celebrated it safely. You yeah. know, uh, whatever traditions are, um, hope you held off just one year so we can have many, many more um, amazing memories together. So, so Maylee, you are known as uh, the Donut Princess. You are, I don't know, officially, unofficially heiress to uh, what many consider a, a donut empire. Um, you've actually taken the empire and made it your own and, you know, brought your own personality and sort of made it Asian American. And, and so I think that's a really, really wonderful part of the story that we're excited to learn. But, but let's roll it back a little bit. How did the Tao family end up in America? Under what circumstances? And, and share with us a little bit of what life was like for Maylee growing up. Absolutely. Thank you for that very strong intro. I'm honored. And thank you for having me here. The Tao family, uh, you know, my parents, uh, actually, I'd start with my grandparents. They actually are from uh, the south of China. And my, you know, I, I'm, I speak Diju. And for those of you who've never heard of it, it's okay. It's a, it's kind of a dying language. Um, and you know, they immigrated to Cambodia because they were in search of new opportunity and it was just very poor in the South of China at that time. So there it's something called a diaspora. Did you people, they ended up going to Switzerland, to France, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, you know, we're all over the place. And I always tell people that, did you people, we're like a secret gang. Like you don't even know, but that you're going to go into the market and meet a did you person. And you already have this rapport with them because you're from this one region where literally people escaped and went to find new opportunity. So, you know, my parents, uh, they were not married in Cambodia, but they were both unfortunately born during the time and living in Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge, which is a huge genocide that happened in Cambodia, killing millions and millions of people. Imagine just waking up one day and being forced out of your home into the jungle, into the lands of Cambodia, forced to work for the government for free, seeing people die in front of your very own eyes for disobeying orders and having a total different government just overthrow the whole country into chaos. My parents spent four years of their life in these concentration camps, uh, constantly trying to escape to find freedom and really just trying to stay alive. You know, my mom tells me a lot of stories of trauma where, you know, she tells me uh, they had, my grandma had two pairs of gold earrings left and in order for them to get across the border, they gave them those gold earrings to take them in a tank across to go to the border. After upon getting to the border in the refugee camp, they thought they had found freedom. They were then forced to get on a bus and they were about to be thrown off this mountain full of dead bodies and bombs and trying to navigate through that with a family of seven. And then trying to go and find food for their family. You know, they only had the the clothes on their back. They only, they, they didn't have anything. They couldn't take anything and, and being forced to, you know, live almost in an exile of their own country. But my mom tells me this one story. Uh, she says, you know, they're in the jungle there. She's with her brothers and her parents and they're on their last can of food. They hear from a neighbor, Hey, If you go like 25 kilometers this way, there's a bamboo forest. You can cut the bamboo and trade it because at the time they didn't have money. Money was not being used. So my mom and her her brother run, literally run that distance to go to that bamboo forest only upon finding that they had already been chopped off. There's nothing left. So she goes to this nearby house and she knocks on the door. She gets down on her knees and there's an old woman who opens the door. She says, please, I have 
I I don't know what I, I can say, but I'm begging you. Is there anything I can do to work for you to have some old rice or to bring some old rice back to my parents? If they don't have rice, we're all going to die. So luckily, you know, there are moments like these where like it's it's such a form of kindness. And I'm sure the old woman, she looked at this poor girl who's I think she was my my mom was around like 11 or 12 at that time. And she ended up working there for three days with that older woman and coming back with enough rice to sustain them to get to their next destination. But this is the kind of childhood that my mom and my dad went through and all in search of finding freedom. Uh, Finally, they were able to get rescued by the Red Cross and they were sponsored to come to America. My mom tells her story of getting here. Uh, She lands in San Francisco. It's cold AF. She doesn't even know what's a penny or an apple. She has no, no idea of like how to speak any English. She ends up in Chinatown in such a poor, poor neighborhood. And, you know, she used to work for the seamstress. She get paid a penny per item. Uh, Mm. she'd be walking around Chinatown with no shoes on. She'd ride the bus. She grinded along with her siblings to save enough money to basically rent a donut shop, which is how Mm. she met my dad, my uncle Ted. He, uh, you know, he's known as the donut King. And at that time he had sponsored hundreds of refugees to come over from Cambodia and to basically set them up with the donut shop. Hey, I know your family's coming over here. You need to support them. I know you have had no education because you've lived your most of your childhood in war. Let me set you up with the donut shop. You can just pay me a little bit of money and I'll set you up. So my uncle Ted, uh, you know, he had heard through the grapevine that my mom was a hard worker. She's a Chinese uh, and Cambodian and took my dad to go see my mom uh, and over an apple fritter and a Coca-Cola instantly <laughs> decided that she was going to, he, he was going to go to my grandpa and ask for her hand in marriage in that 15 minute window. What? And, Yes. So it also goes to show like my parents were arranged, you know, these are old, old traditions that luckily (laughs) I myself do not have to go through. But, you know, my mom tells me, she's like, I had all these guys come like to the donut shop to like, look and see, you know, if, if, you know, if she was a good, good, good housewife or good wife. And in 15 minutes, uh, Uncle Ted, with his reputation, with his uh, charmingness, uh, ended up asking my grandpa and agreed to marry them. So um, my parents, they, you know, worked their way up um, in my family. You know, obviously there's everything related to donuts. Uh, my, my uncle, he actually started uh, B&H Supplies, which is uh, basically all the baking supplies. I have another aunt who owns a croissant factory and many, many uncles and aunts who own donut shops and still own them to this day. Wow. And yeah, so basically the Tao family, we ended up, you know, residing in Orange County. And when my mom saved enough money with my dad, we moved to the west side of LA. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much the the story of how I, I got here. Um, you know, I was born in 89. Uh, I have an older brother and all I remember from my childhood is, you know, spending a lot of time at the shop, you know, it was like <laughs> always there. Uh, there's stories that regulars tell me, you know, regular clients who come into the shop. I remember when you were in your mom's womb, you're in that belly. You couldn't even tell she was pregnant. And uh, after, you know, after I was born, uh, Yes, running around the donut shop with my brother, sitting at the table, doing my homework, reading, uh, kicking customers. That's a we have a favorite, Rick. He he loved he loved. It. I would always kick him. Um, and then when I was at the age of six, I was like ready to help my parents. And I'm sure a lot of you out there listening can identify with that. It's either you know like if you go into like any Asian establishment, you'll like look in the back and for sure you'll see like a little cot or bed because that's probably where you would hang out. Yeah. Um, so I, I, my mom at the time, she owned a Chinese food restaurant right, right next to DK's Donuts. Mm. And DK's Donuts was, you know, our shop growing up. It's uh, located in Santa Monica and 16th Street. It's been open 24 hours since they opened it in 1981. Wow. And at the age of six, I was standing on a milk crate 
helping customers, helping my mom and my dad understand uh, English and like what people were asking for. I remember accompanying my dad going to Costco on, on like every, you know, once a week, like riding the orange cart, like helping him with supplies. Um, and you know, as I got older, I would help out on the weekends. That was my weekend thing. I would wake up at five or 6am since I was like 10 and, uh, go into the shop and, and help them out. And, you know, it took me, uh, even through college, you know, I went to UC San Diego to study communications and I would still come back and drive to help them on the weekends just to be sure that they had somebody covered. Um, even when I was a young girl, I'd, I'd tell my dad like, Hey dad, like I, I think we should do this. And he'd be like, <laughs> okay. And he'd try it and it'd be a good idea. So he's like, um, you know, my dad also trained me at a young age to to give change. You know, we we played this game called Gimme, where it's like, I give you $20, like, what do I get back? So clearly he was training me to, mm. you know, run the business at a, at a young age. So yeah, and then I went to UCSD for communications. I thought I'd never look back. I thought I would not come back to the donut shop. And, you know, after college, I ended up coming back. <laughs> That's I. It, it's crazy, right? And I think th there's so much that you've shared in your origin story of timing, luck, kindness, and and generosity. And I think it's something that we as like I came here when I was eight. Mm -hmm. Like that that process, you know, I don't know if it could be duplicated now. Like yeah. just giving somebody an opportunity, letting people stay at your home, like all these things that we saw our parents do just because like, hey, you're Cambodian, I'm Cambodian, I'm Korean, you're Korean, like that feeling of instant bond and community in a foreign land because our immigrant community hadn't yet and the refugee community hadn't yet evolved to the point where we have the now audacity to, you know, be wanted, treated, the same way as like, you know, white Americans, like we don't have that same love or that same, you know, it's, it's different. It's not good or bad, but like, it's different, but like your family's story is all about that. Right. Like, you know, and I still remember growing up too, like anytime we came here in 92. So like anytime a, um, a family friend or, you know, somebody would remotely visit LA, it's like, okay, like we're dropping what we're doing. Right. Like we're taking them to Disneyland, like we're hosting them for something, you know, we're, we're packing up the minivan and going to Grand Canyon. And like, sorry, I wouldn't do that for anybody right now, pandemic <laughs> or not. Right. Like it's just different. And I think it's just it's, it's, it's a different time. And I think that's how, you know, the, the, the relationships and the bonds are formed even between siblings and family members because they went through stuff together. And so absolutely. And, and that's a lesson that, you know, I, I wish that I will, you know, somehow teach my kids too, because, you know, the, not only did we actually come from more collectively minded communities and societies, but when you're an immigrant and you have to survive and you don't know anybody else, like you rely on everything, like that's your entire livelihood. Right. So that, that is so cool. T tell me about college. What did you want to do? I mean, obviously, you know, um, as, as with most immigrant refugee parents, I assume they, you know, highly, highly prioritize academics. I guess before that, like your, your, your dad seemed to be, you said there was a lot of subtle moments of training and just sort of life teaching, life skill teaching. What did he want you to do? Was there, was that always, was this the plan for you to come back home or tell me about that? So I think that my parents, um, I, again, there's another aspect to this whole story about timing is that, you know, they did send me to the best schools. I went to a private Catholic high school and I wasn't even Catholic, <laughs> you know, like they're like, oh, Catholic school, like they have the best education and they're very disciplined. Like, you know, you're going to be a big fish in a small pond. Like they didn't send me to public school. They wanted me to have an opportunity that they never got to have. And I've all, I'll always respect them for that. I think that's something that this generation, either mine or the next won't ever really understand is like there were many sacrifices made so that I could go to the best school. So um, to answer your question, you know, my dad, he, he never really 
told me what I should do. It was more of like what my mom told me to do. And, you know, I have a dragon mom. I'm sure you guys know what a dragon mom is, but if you don't, dragon mom is very strict. I was always, you know, my curfew was always sunset. Just because I was a girl, I couldn't do the things my brother could do. It's very limited. And a lot of, uh, you know, my childhood, it's just like, you know, she's always saying like, be strong, study hard. Um, and there was no real discussion of, you know, mental health or anything like that. You know, I was always trying to reach for like this unreachable goal with her, you know, like just always trying to satisfy her and unable to. And I think that's what a lot of Asian Americans have to deal with nowadays. Um, but yeah, going to UCSD, my mom's like, you know what, I really want you to be a reporter. You know, reporters, they make good money. It's not a donut shop. It's just safe. Uh, and I think you can do it. And so that's exactly what I set to do in college. I did communications. I was interning for San Diego 6CW Network in San Diego. Hmm. And I was on clearly on the path of becoming a reporter. And, you know, going back to that moment of, you know, I had just graduated and I had realized that I didn't want to be a reporter. In fact, in fact, like as a younger kid, I have a very specific memory of talking to my dad about being a social worker. I was like, dad, huh. I want to like make this world better. Like, and he, what my dad told me was social workers don't make enough money. And that was the end of the conversation. And so I'm, you know, I'm in college and I'm, I, you know, I think I'm going to be a reporter. I ended up trying the reporting and realizing that I hated it. Um, I didn't like that the networks were all about ratings. I didn't mm. like that I had to dedicate literally my entire life to the schedule, which is like they wake up earlier than donut making people. Like <laughs> you wake up at four o'clock right. to go to the shop. They wake up at like 2 a.m. They're putting stories together. They're they're going. And I wouldn't say that it's very safe. You know, you go and there's like murder scenes and like crazy things are happening. Yeah. Um, so it just wasn't my cup of tea. I just didn't want to dedicate my life to something that I didn't find fulfilling. And so I interned, actually did marketing and PR at UCSD and just hung out around there for a little bit before returning back. And I, I came back because my mom said, I need your help. I looked at her and I looked at the way she, like I looked at her face for someone when I came back from college and I realized, wow, she's aging a lot. She doesn't look like mom before she's aging mm. more. She was still putting in like, 12 to 18 hour days, even with full staff, you know, my mom's so dedicated to her, to our business. And I was like, okay, um, you know, I'll just do this for a little bit. But I came in with like a totally different perspective. I came in and I was like, you know what, I'm going to rebrand the store. And <laughs> I just didn't really know what that was going to take or what that meant. But, you know, I started with a logo and then I started with the boxes and I started with, the, you know, in the kitchen experimenting with all these different kinds of creations. And if you're not really familiar with DK's Donuts and Bakery, uh, we have over 120 different kinds of traditional specialty and hybrid donuts, which hybrid donuts mm. are kind of what put us on the map. So, you know, you've got... I, I really, I think that I brought in not only a fresh perspective, but I knew what the people wanted because I, I would, you know, I have friends and I like would study them. I, you know, I've got the news, I'm looking at what people like and what was really in was experiential goods, like weird mm. combinations. Yeah. So, you know, at first, my first creation was the Ube donut, the world's first Ube donut. And it's a purple yam with a donut. And I was like, you know what? People who don't want to feel that guilty about eating a donut will love this. <laughs> and in fact, you know, it was actually very satisfying to show ube, which is a purple yam to a white person because they had never seen an ube before. Uh, they would call it like ube. They call it like really weird <laughs> names. And they'd be kind of scared about the color, which is this bright purple. And I remember, okay, I'm going to, I, I'm going to make this donut, but I'm not going to make it too sweet. Cause I also mm. want to, I also want to appeal to the Asian community, which we don't like things too sweet, you know? So that was my first thing. I, I would say the biggest 
addition to our donut lineup would be the half croissant, half donut. At the time, we called it the DKRONUT, which ended up getting a cease and desist letter from someone in New York who had <laughs> trademarked the word C-R-O-N-U-T. So we ended up calling it the double decker hashtag O-N-U-T. And, uh, you know, I, we created that we, we came in and created the item. It's a family recipe. I came to my mom and I was like, mom, look, I have an idea. <laughs> Why don't we try to make this new pastry? And I was like, I promise it's going to do really well. So we, we make it and we put it on our shelves and people are just so confused because this donut is like $5 and it's yeah. just like, it looks different and it's like shaped different and like there's different toppings. It doesn't look like the other ones. So, you know, the first week or two go by and like we barely sell any, like I'm pitching this donut, like as if I'm like, dude, it's the, you know, it's the thing. It's the, it's this really <laughs> popular donut. And uh, my regulars are like, what? Like I'm so confused. And so, you know, I, I used a lot of the knowledge that I'd gained in college. And I was like, you know what? It's just because the right people haven't eaten this donut. Uh. So, you know, I, I started reaching out uh, to a few different publications, uh, reaching out to friends who worked in different places. And the right person had eaten the donut. And that was the the writer on Thrillist. Uh. He, you know, my mom, she she always tells a story. It's just like so funny. Very Asian way of thinking. I was like, hey, mom, there's this guy. He's going to come. He's from Thrillist. You know, don't charge him, okay? Like just, you know, just put in a box and he'll be there. And so he, he comes in and my mom's like, oh, he's like a very like chubby guy. He's like, wait, these are, for, you know, she's like, are we going to charge him for this? And I was like, no, 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 don't charge him. So he tries it. He loves it, writes this article. And our business pretty much has never been the same. Um, we, after that day, came into work the next day at 5 a.m. And the phone would not stop ringing. Wow. Which literally people are like, hey, do you have the, you know, the, the CRO and UT? And I'm like, yeah, we have it. Like we call it this, but you know, it's, we made it. And this happened throughout the whole year. Um, my mom and I put in 20 hour days at the bakery. Wow. The, 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 what, there was a wall of orders that we couldn't fill fast enough. People were waiting hour, two hours to, to try this amazing pastry. And we just grinded, you know, my mom, it, I, I give so much respect to her because, you know, she was excited but and we were exhausted, but we kept going because we're like, wow, like this is, we, this is it. Like we did it. And after that, everything that we came out with later, the half waffle, half donut, ice cream donut, um, we came out with keto donuts, uh, gluten-friendly donuts, vegan donuts. You know, I, I really start to play on you know, the dietary restrictions that people in Los Angeles mm. have and uh, really just expanding our whole reach to, um, you know, satisfy the taste buds of people who came into our shop. And um, I think my, my, my last invention, you know, was understanding also that Donuts could now be a gift. You know, we think mm. about donuts in movies. We think about them in that classic pink box where they bring right. it in for work. Uh, you know, let's make it special. So I came up with uh, letter donuts. You could spell any kind of message. Uh, most people order them for birthdays. We started making them Texas-sized. And then the donut bouquet, which is my last big invention where – you know, it's a personalized note and it's a special pin. And it's like, I've really taken this donut experience and flipped it in, in ways yeah. that nobody has ever really done before. And I love saying that I'm the first one to do things because that's just like the overachiever in me. That's just like what my mom has instilled in me, like do the very best that you can. And that's pretty much where I am to date right now. <laughs> I, I think there's so many great lessons in your entire life's journey, right? And I think you, I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but I think you are the bridge. You are the bridge between two cultures, not just Cambodian, Chinese, or American, but generationally. And I think the way that we view experiences, the way that we view gifting, there's been a lot of pioneers like yourself who've 
taken what is considered to be sort of an American staple, um, traditionally mundane, mm-hmm. and then put a spin on it, right? Like, like what did Lucky Strike do for bowling? Like they made it cool again yeah. and they just charged like 10 times the money. Like <laughs> what did Dave and Busters do to arcades, right? Like there's, there's a few, you know, and, and you're right up there with all of them, right? Where you've taken something like, you know, old school mindset is cost, right? Like traditional small business owners in the food business, it's all about cost. It's not really about innovation because it's scary. Innovation yeah. is scary. And especially if you uh, can repeat and, you know, rinse and repeat the process that works for you and works for them. Like, why would you take a risk, right? right. Like if, if a donut store, if a laundromat, if a restaurant, like your consistent revenue, like why take that risk? But I think we, again, this comes from this weird like audacity, right? Like mm-hmm. we dare to dream bigger. We can see from a different angle. And, and I, I got to say, I, th- I think you're lucky because I have other friends, we all do in similar situations where their dads or their moms bring them into the family business mm-hmm. and say, run it yeah, only with words, but then they don't let it make a goddamn decision. Yes. Right. Like, and then all the people who work for them never see the kid as the boss because they've always seen them as the kid mm-hmm. and the patriarch or the matriarch never really blesses them publicly to have authority. So they're stuck in this like, wait a minute, I gave up opportunity elsewhere to do this for you. And yet I feel handcuffed, right? And you're not making, letting me make executive decisions. Mm -hmm. Share with us on that note, like how has your relationship with your parents evolved? Because I'm sure from the outside, you've told the very, like we've all, we've done all this crazy stuff, but like, I think the point of relatability and, and resonance for us is I think it'd be nuts to work with your parents 24-7, right? Like <laughs> there's the good parts because you're building your empire together. But yes. every every child, especially uh, immigrant children who've grown up with different sets of beliefs or different sort of environments, it's the thing that like is, I don't know, it's it's different. Um, yeah. not, any, not, not all of us would go through it, but share with us, you know, that like, was it rough at first? And like, how, how was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, definitely it was rough at first because you you think about like a business where you have employees who view you as like, you know, the little kid. I mean, that is something that sometimes still happens. Um, you know, my I, I shared a lot about all the good things that happened within the past few years. But, um, you know, the first time I came up to my mom and I was like, hey, like, I want to do this this CRO and UT thing. And she's like, no, (laughs) you know, there's so many no's, so many no's, so much opposition. Like anytime I'd like, even when I started the Instagram, right. I created this donut community of like 84,000 people on Instagram. And at first she's like, why are you taking pictures of everything? You know, she's so like confused and irritated and frustrated. I'm like, mom, just, just trust me on this. You know, I'm just doing like, let me just do this. And, um, you know, it is very hard to defy what your parents have already created. Because again, like you said, it works. Everything works. You know, you have a great business. It's working. But, you know, when you want to put your own spin on it, it's almost like you have to prove yourself. And I had to time and time again, when I would introduce new things, like when I did the Texas size donut and the Texas size donut tier and, you know, just giving her all these different ideas. I mean, it's, it's never a great, <laughs> it's never a great thing when you're in an argument being like, this will work, this doesn't work. Um, and I always come out with this saying of, you don't know until you try, let's try it. Why, why not? Like, we have full control of our business. Like, why don't we try it? Um, my dad, he, he's very supportive, but he kind of, he's actually retired now in, in, in Thailand. So, um, he doesn't really have a big say on it. He just has his fundamental values of like, what will be, what will make a successful donut shop, how he, he used to run it. Uh, I would say it's more of my mom where like, you know, when I was working with her on those 20 hour days, like I, I was raised with so much respect that I just didn't even question it, you know? Um, but again, like having this Asian background, uh, my mom, 
she would always have like a huge bowl of like rice or noodles for me at my break. You know, she'd be like, go eat, let's grind, go eat, let's grind, you know? So she, she knew exactly like what position she had put me in. Um, and that sometimes, you know, like when things don't go well, like she blames herself. She's like, oh my gosh, I put you in this position, like to be at the shop. And I tell her, no, like it's my choice. I, I made this choice to come here and to do this. And I'm actually very, very grateful that my mom has stood right by me. Uh, whether we agreed or not is that she's been there to be that, you know, that support, that like balancing beam of, of a foundation. And I'll always like respect her for that. But again, dealing with Asian parents, sometimes like you, it's it's a very old school way of thinking versus this new school of thinking that I've brought to the table, and it's it's never always pretty. Let's just say that. <laughs> I I can't. Well, I think that's also a lesson in you don't know until you actually do it, right? I think there's a lot of us, yeah. um, probably probably myself included, where the idea of spending that much time with our parents <laughs> is frightening, right? Like it's almost you know um, going to business. Or, you know, owning a business with your spouse, right? Or your siblings. Like there's, we, we've been led to believe wrong because we have choice. Again, the audacity of choice and this privilege that we live in that, you know, if you don't have to, like you should do your own separate things. But yeah. we look at a lot of our parents, like they have no choice. They had to run businesses themselves. Um, so I, I think that's really, really amazing. Um, tell us about, so you, you spoke about your mother and your immediate family, but, you know, your uncle, uh, the the... I guess the, the hero in the Donut King documentary, you know, he's built an empire and he's brought a lot of other people with it. Um, the iconic pink box, right? Like there's a mm -hmm. history behind that. The legally unaffiliated, but sort of all connected chain of donut stores all across Southern California that, you know, have all share a relationship, right? Like mm -hmm. how did they view your innovation? Did they adopt? Did they see it as, oh, you know, Maylee's being just a kid. It's like, how is that? Because I think that's, you know, you innovated and brought new things very, in a time that I think was very easy to do so, right? With yes. Instagram, with social media, with mm -hmm. bloggers and with, you know, Yelp and, and these things that couldn't probably have done it, you know, even five years ago or 10 years ago. Right. But how, how did they, are, are they asking you for ideas now or was it always that way? I think that there's a, a, a line between the people who have copied and adopted it. And, you know, what I say to that is that's very flattering. And, you know, we're in different zones. You know, there's enough donut selling to go around so you can totally do it. But it's really funny that you mentioned that because my distributor for, for the products that we use, he he looks at me and he goes, you know, like you're the most like, like you're the most hated slash like people are so jealous of you. And I was like, why? And they're like, come on, Maylee. Like, you, do you know what you've done? Like, you know, he, he brings me to like present to like all the things that I have done. I'm like, but why? Like, you know, like I, I, I think that sometimes I just keep my head down and work so hard because I don't really look, look at anybody around me. I'm kind of looking like, what can I do to, to stand out? Um, but a lot of donor shops have not adopted that. Um, again, going back to your point about it's all about cost. They're going to look at this donut box and be like, this is over a dollar per box. You know, they look, they look at that cost. But how I see is like, that's a walking business card. How many eyes are you going to get on that box? How many things are you going to bring that box to where they're going to go? Oh, wow. DKs or, you know, people are walking with this box in there salivating thing like what's inside you know I've traveled with I've actually like delivered donuts to friends in different states and, and such and people like I'll travel alone people always some random person will always sit next to me like so what's in the box like what, what's in there you know they're very curious but I mean um you know Ted what what Uncle Ted did was he really set the foundation uh going back to your your comment about the pink box the only reason why pink boxes got popular was because they were cheaper than the white ones. I repeat, it was like an Asian business move. Like it was not because, oh my God, pink is like, you know, re related to this. It's really because it was a cheaper box and great, you know, like that's how 
back in the day in the 70s, 80s, 90s, these donut shops could save on cost of labor because they had their their families working and materials they could save on the boxes, Um, which is so funny because the pink box is such an American, iconic Los Angeles thing that you see them in movies, you see them in office buildings, you you know, you see them everywhere. Um, But, you know, I have just like a different vision, you know, like what is the value of this pink box if they don't know it's from your shop? And that's why, you know, I adopted the, you know, our classic colorful box um, with with my donut brands is I want to capture your attention. But um, Uncle Ted, he, you know, he has some good relationships with people. And there are some bad relationships with people because he himself has burned some bridges in his whole donut empire as well. So I mean, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> I yes, because I, I find it fascinating that the whole ecosystem is so interconnected. So you have people that are sort of frenemies, competitors, but, you know, but donuts for the most part, um, in cities like LA and Santa Monica, New York, where, where the other guy, you know, has, I, I've stood in his line, right? Like getting the thing both here and <laughs> in LA and New York, right? Like, yeah, like there's, it's, it's a finite game, right? Meaning it's a fresh product. It's a perishable product. It's a localized product. And mm-hmm. so like if somebody, I don't know, opened up a, I don't know, a, a copycat in San Francisco, like, are they really taking from you? I, I don't know. Right. Like, so there's this scarcity mindset that I think exists in, you know, certain, very many, you know, early generation immigrant mindset where it's cost-based, you know, this is the same mindset of, you know, putting money in a mattress, right? Like saving instead of growing and investing, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and who knows, we may not be doing all things right either, right? Yeah. But it's just what makes sense for us because we have a better understanding of that. What have you learned about yourself and what is possible for you in the years to come? A lot of us have flipped the coin in one generation, like from what your mother did when she was 11 to now. Like that advancement, that progress I don't know if it's happened too many times in global history that somebody can go from that, right? Like, and and now, you know, on, on the new TV show, House of Ho, like there's starting to be documentation of these, like at least one definition of success, right? Like how they went from a racks to riches story. Like, how do you process that? And do you talk about that with your mother? Like, or is it just, you know, that's painful. Let's not talk about it so much and let's enjoy what we have now. Because that's still literally a memory that's alive from somebody who's experienced it. Yeah. So, I mean, for to add on to your your first thing, um, to what I've learned about myself through this is, you know, I did it. I did it for my parents. You know, I I came back because they asked for help. I I put aside a lot of the things that. I wanted to do at the time. I mean, I think this has really existed since I was like 10 years, six or 10 years old. Like, can I sleep in? No, you're going to work. And I, I really got to see for myself, like, wow, like it's incredible what I've, I've accomplished and I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old and you know, so when I stepped in, I was like 23 years old, but I just, I just knew how to grind. Like I knew how to work. I just, I gave it my all, you know, I was up at 4 a.m. in the shop, like doing the thing. I was I was the conductor and everything around it. And I just learned like, you know, I really respect my parents. Um, I learned that I'm possible. I'm, I'm capable of it. And, you know, for my parents to look at me like they are so damn proud of me for what I've done. And I know that I'm lucky uh, to have, and I'm very privileged to have the opportunity to do so. And I, I did it for them. And now that I'm, you know, progressing on my journey, it's like, great. Like I've, I've made them happy. I'm supporting my, my parents. Like what else can I do to impact other people's lives? You know, I go back to like little girl, like asking her dad, like, I want to be a social worker. Like I want to make the world a better place, you know? And, and like, I go back and I'm like, wow, like that still exists in me. Like it's not too late to do that. And I think that 
this is just the beginning of what is to come. Um, whether it be I open up more donut shops or I pivot and go in a different direction, you know, like what's there is like the knowledge that I know how to work hard. Um, I, I treat people with kindness and, you know, I, I know that I can impact people's lives, whether that be with a donut, surprise donut delivery, um, or, or whatever else I have in mind. Like the world is literally my oyster. I can do it. Um, and with the right training and, and everything, it, anything is possible. Like your dreams can be achieved. It just, you know, it takes that dedication and commitment of like, I'm going to grind this out. So let's talk about legacy. Your, your legacy is, is well on its way. You're also a, a branding genius. If I had a, if I, well, I have other shows, but one show that I think I would really enjoy doing is just talking about marketing and branding and growth stuff all day. Cause when you see it, you know, game respect game, like when you see it, you're like, holy crap, that's brilliant. Thank you. How did you, how did the, 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 the mystique and allure of the donut princess begin? Was it, was that a title bestowed upon you by somebody else? Or we're like, you know what? Nobody's got this title and I'm just going to take it because it's the brand. It's kind of a little bit of both. So I looked at my uncle, right? He's the donut king. Like, look what he did for hundreds of families. He set them up for success. Like, think about, he's like the the guy, he's like the, you know how Vietnamese, Vietnamese people have nail shops? He's like the guy that set it up and like, you know, people started to copy that model. But imagine if like he, he wasn't that guy. Like, what would Cambodian... Cambodians do when they came here with no money and like tried to, you know, work a job and try to support their whole family. And and when you talk about legacy, it's like I constantly think like, what am I gonna leave for the next generation when I'm long and gone that they can benefit from? Um, and you know, the title Donut Princess, uh, it it, it was a little bit of from my uncle being the the donut king, people would come in and be like, you're the donut queen. And I'd be like, no, 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 that's too old. That's too old. I want to be the donut princess. It's cuter. <laughs> you know, it's got a ring to it. Uh, and eventually calling, uh, taking donut princess, the title for myself and, and, and doing things for the community. I think that's what really solidified the donut princess title is because not only was I, you know, COO, head, head, head honcho at the shop, you know, making things move, doing these crazy negotiations and deals with like Hulu or Activision, you know, like being like this person that people could come to with all their donut needs. I understood that that itself did not sustain our business. It's really who we were for the community. So we would donate to schools, donate to charities. Um, even in during this pandemic, you know, you think about what a princess a donut princess does well the donut princess is like you know the person who like it's like oprah you know like you get a donut you get a donut but uh during the pandemic uh in march i until about june july august around september like we fed 4000 people in healthcare uh with my new initiative lunch boxes for love and i thought like what can I do in this situation? You know, like things were closing down. It wasn't, it wasn't safe to go outside. Like what about my mom? You know, like I couldn't just sit there and not do anything. So I had to think this, these donuts will boost the morale of healthcare workers. And it's the least I could do in the situation. So the donut princess title is, it's my honor to be Los Angeles is Donut Princess, and I hope that I can carry the title and give it justice. That's beautiful. And I think you do what you want. You've built this, you're, you're continuing on, on the work of your parents, hard work, and to take it in a different way. And then there's a lot of lessons there and just um, whether you're uh, starting a business, whether you are being pressured to come back home in a way to sort of take over your parents' business, whatever it is, um, who would have thought that you could innovate your way out of a donut shop? You know, we're, we're seeing it a little bit, right? Like, um, especially out here in LA, you know, Randy's expanded, um, you know, they do cool donuts, you know, obviously, you know, Krispy Kreme, like there, there's, it's not as mundane as people think it is, but just the idea of, you know, just a local donut shop that sort of, you know, put itself on the map and you can do whatever you want with it. And 
Um, I think your, your pivot into more of the digital world and sort of uh, helping others do the same and then learn from your skills, I think is fantastic. Another topic of legacy is obviously the documentary that came out this year, which features the, the story um, of your uncle. How did that project come about? Um, how were you involved? You know, his story isn't all rosy as, as, you know, if you're familiar with the story, if you watch, you know, it's, but I think it's an honest, authentic look at um, American life from a refugee or an immigrant's perspective. We often celebrate just the happy parts mm-hmm. or like to remember just the happy parts. But I think it's also important to tell the whole story because lessons, there, there are a few lessons in success. There are many more lessons in challenges and sort of recovering from that. But how did it come about? Um, how are you involved and, and why are you so passionate about sharing a story? Absolutely. So, you know, the Donut King documentary, um, it actually came about from a cold call. And like, uh, you know, it's at the bakery, do my thing. And I get a lot of like really amazing random calls, like calls from Nickelodeon, calls from big movies, calls from BBC guy in London, you know, want to do a story. And this particular phone call was from the director, Alice. And Alice goes, are you a Cambodian owned donut shop? And, you know, do you know Uncle Ted? And like, can I talk to you about this? And I literally respond like, you're talking to the right person. I'm going to help you. What do you need? And that's pretty much how it started. It took about two years to gather all the filming and editing together. And we were supposed to debut at South by Southwest. Like I had Mm. my ticket booked. I was so excited. We're going to do some Q&A things. Like we're going to see this, you know, that was the first film festival that we had entered in and won an award in. And all obviously the pandemic, it canceled all that. We were still participating in other film festivals and winning. Um, And finally, Greenwich Entertainment ended up buying it. And so you can now watch it on uh, Google Play, Apple TV, and uh, Amazon Prime now. And you can, you know, purchase it through an Eventbrite link, uh, which I can send to you to share. Um, And, you know... Then it's now if actually bought inter- the international rights are bought by Vice. And mm. so that means it's going to be internationally distributed sometime later this year. And today, uh, just scrolling on my Facebook, Alice had posted that we are on the top 10 films of 2020 by Harper's Bazaar. And, you know, I think about how surreal it is to, first of all, win a ton of awards for this and honestly, every day I get DMs and and emails. Like, I guess it's like, you know, snail mail, like back in the day when you get mail from somebody who admires you and admires the film. But there are people who have watched this from Atlanta, Japan and Georgia and up in the Bay, New York. And they've sent me all these amazing like testimonials of like the donut king was life changing the don't now like you know other comments i finally understand my family's journey mm. after watching your film and why i think this is so important is like a lot of our a lot of people i guess in my generation they they never asked their parents where did grandpa come from where did you come from what was your childhood like and I think that this the documentary does such a good job to not only tell the struggle of my family and how they came over, but it's such an immigrant story where you can identify with my mom, who's, you know, not only working a ton of hours, but making you some delicious food to put on the table. Um, Uncle Ted, who obviously he's he's such a charming guy. He's the one who started all and unfortunately, you know, had issues with gambling. And I know Asian culture, you know, gambling is such a big thing. It's such a big problem. Uh, there are so many layers to that, even about like America's political climate on accepting immigrants. And, you know, it, it really like the documentary in itself is it's a feel good film. Um, if you don't see yourself in it, like I'm sure you will in some way, whether it be the new school or the old school generation, uh, it tells it so visually and so like compelling that this actually happened to people like 20, 30 years ago. And here we are living in America in a totally different realm. And on top of that, I mean, the film opens with the Wu-Tang song and Daywon song, who's a pro skateboarder, 
uh, Scott Ridley. He's he's behind it. And so many people have gotten to watch the film. I would love if you guys could check it out because it's it's definitely something you want to watch with your parents. And, and you can learn not only about the donut industry and how it's changed or how it was established, but like a little bit about your own history. And one thing that I think I want to add too is we often... I think we do this all the time. Like we, we focus on the story, right? Which is important. Yeah. The story is important and it needs to be documented. But who's doing the documentation and how it came about and who's on the team? That's just as important. I agree. You, you, you had an Asian woman wanting to tell an Asian story. And like, it's, I don't know. It's disappointing that we still have to like celebrate these small wins. Right. Um, of, of storytelling, but... We need these to get to a point where we don't need to celebrate them anymore, right? And exactly. I think, and I mean, this is why we do this podcast. This is why you have your own show, like everybody else, right? Like nobody's coming to tell our stories, guys. Nobody. And if they do, it's not, you're not going to be happy with the way they tell it, right? Because yeah. they're going to take your likeness and whatever they can take from your story and fit their narrative. And whether it is through a podcast, which is a medium that is completely controllable, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, I don't care. I hope that what you take away from this is you can do whatever you want, but there's power in that voice. There's power to take your gifts as a filmmaker, as Alice did, to tell a story that otherwise may have gone very quietly. And like celebrate the people that have changed entire communities and really help them be remembered because you don't know where that inspiration is going to come next, right? And you yeah. mentioned something, Maylee, that, you know, we, we often don't ask our parents about some of the more challenging parts of our family's history. I, I also argue that they don't want to share it because that's their way, whether it is right or wrong, it's their way of trying to shield us and our kids even from the thing that they went through. Because one way to think about it is we worked our ass off to leave that behind. Why would we bring it up? Do you want to know? But you're right. It's on us to get it out of them because... Otherwise, they'll never share, right? And so yeah. there are, yeah. Yeah, and to add to that, like, I, I do agree with you. I think that the one of the reasons why they don't share is, number one, they don't know how to deal with that trauma. They don't know how to tell the story without passing on this generational trauma onto you. I'm not going to lie. Every time my mom tells me that story, I literally have to hold back tears. And then I go in another room and, like, start crying because I think about if I were in that situation or what she had to go through to get to me and like the, the legacy that I have living on my shoulders. And I would challenge, you know, you guys to do that, to start documenting what your parents went through. So when your kids ask you, Hey, where's grandpa from? You will have an answer for them. I think it's important to remember your roots. Like, you know, we still practice some very traditional ancient things like Chinese New Year, we're like burning paper, like money paper and like making a feast for our ancestors. Um, and you'll notice that, you know, there's a lot of things that your parents do that if you just paid a little bit more attention to it is almost them dealing with their trauma. Like, for example, my mom is an absolute hoarder. Like, you, as a kid, if, if I said, oh, I really like, you know, this type of noodle, our pantry would have 10 cases of that noodle just in case anything happened. And it's like, you know, getting more into my mom's story, it's like, wow, like I totally get it. Like she thinks that at any day, at any time, something could happen and we got to go and we're going to have food. You know, like our pantry is always stocked for this very reason and also great for the pandemic too, if you don't have to leave the house. But, you know, hoard, like being a hoarder, that's such a trait that I do attribute to what she went through, what she experienced. And if we really address that and start to understand instead of blame them, I think it'd be a totally different conversation. I think that a lot of Asian American kids like myself, it's, you know, when you grow up, you're like, oh, like, why is my mom like this? Like, why is my dad like this? And, you know, you gotta like, when you're older, you might start to understand more. You can ask questions and it, it's some parents. Yeah. They will never want to tell you because 
it's tr- it's really it's really terrible. You know, it's it's not like it's not like the most glamorous thing to tell your kids, but I do think that you've got the responsibility to ask and to document that so that your kids can know if they're interested. And it's the stories that I think live on. Yes, we have cultural differences. Uh, many of us have language differences. Um, so it's hard to communicate or even storytell. You know, how do you ask your grandparents if you don't understand your native or they don't understand English enough to tell that story? Right. And, and how do you document it? Right. And I think it's mm-hmm. and, and as we have children here and as we you know raise a new generation of Asian American kids, um, I, I as a dad think about, well, how much Korean do I want to, you know, have them learn? Um, what is appropriate? You know, what is, of course, the answer is yes, but how much, um, mm-hmm. how much culture? And, and so I, I think, and as, as we evolve too, you know, uh, mixed race children, uh, two Asian, you know, one Asian, one not Asian, like, how do you manage that? But I think really important to always understand where we come from, uh, because it's not that far beyond, right? Um, right. When we talk about um, our Cambodian friends or Vietnamese friends, like those wounds are still fresh. Absolutely. You know, for, for you know, my people, Korean people, our grandparents lived through occupation and war and mm-hmm. they lost siblings. And like those memories are still very fresh. And so, yes, we live in America. Yes, we live in a capitalistic and opportunistic society, but we're not that far behind, guys, which means we actually don't know what life is going to be for our kids. Right. You know, we could be at, at the you know precipice of massive progress or a weird turn in society. And what are you, what's important to you and what are you preparing your children and your family for? But I, I think what you're doing, Meili, is, is wonderful. You are somehow magically intertwining, paying homage and respect to the people who have helped you get to where you are, but also on, on their shoulders and, you know, thanks to their hard work, building a completely new vision of what being a restaurateur, a donut shop owner, a forward thinking business owner, a branding expert means in our world. Because I, th- I I genuinely believe this. You could have turned any product into something special. It just happened to be donuts. But that's the beautiful thing, right? Like, yeah. and I don't know, I think about, well, hell, if she turned donuts into like that, you know, what's, what's next? And so I, I think it's exciting. You know, we, we run in similar circles and, and I've seen uh, your story being shared and the people that you connect with and you uplift a lot of people. You give a lot of people uh, direct hope through your help, but also indirect hope and inspiration through the work that you do, knowing that you could be the daughter of a donut shop owner and completely still do that and honor that and, and do it your own way. So you can find Meili pretty much everywhere. I will put <laughs> I will put the links. Um, DonutPrincessLA.com is her business and where you can find her. If you are living in Southern California, as she mentioned, open 24-7 for as long as mankind can remember on the corner of 16th and Santa Monica, um, which is a short drive from where I live. So if you do have the opportunity to go, go say hello, pick up some donuts for your family, um, order it. Because I think more than ever too, we need to support each other's businesses. I know it's easy, but Jeff Bezos does not need more of your money. Neither does the Walton family and neither does whoever owns Target. So support your small business friends. Ask them how they're doing. And if they don't need help, ask because everybody has friends who's struggling too. You know, let, let's help each other. As I mentioned before, we're recording this in the middle of December. You're probably going to hear it in January. It's a spooky time. And so um, it's a hopeful time, but it's also a challenging time. And so uh, let's do what we can. You can follow her on Instagram at Meili Tao. You can check out the documentary. Um, I think things will evolve. So um, we'll just suggest that you check out the website for the documentary and <laughs> look up on the internet where you can watch it. And if you're able to, if you have the audacity to share our stories, especially those of those of the generation before us, because um, they don't know what podcasting is. They don't know what any of this stuff is. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they need a little bit of encouragement. So Meili, thank you for what you've done and what you continue to do to uplift all of us and to really pay honor to your uncle and to your family in, in all that you do. So I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I was trying to think of something donutty or sweet or sugary to say as a pun, but you know, uh, I have no idea. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, well, you, we could basically just say we out here. Don't worry. Don't worry. Things are going to be okay. Um, Things are going to be okay. 
Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks so much. And we will see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. There's a certain amount of energy that comes from talking to fellow entrepreneurs and um, builders and really, really excited to have spoken with Mei Lee about uh, her process and um, all that she has done and uh, is working on right now. So thank you so much to Mei Lee. Really excited. Uh, follow us as well at The Urged Americans. If you are on Instagram, if you are on Facebook, if you're on LinkedIn, on Twitter, we are at Dear Asian Am. And send us a note. Uh, DM us. Shoot us an email. If you prefer email, it's hello at DearAsianAmericans.com. And as always, we appreciate you sharing this episode with a friend, a colleague, or a family member if you thought the story would resonate with them as well. Thanks so much, as always, for tuning in. It is an honor to share our stories with you each and every week and twice this week. And so with much thanks and with much gratitude, wishing you all the health and safety and especially happiness as we build towards a better future for all of us in 2021 and beyond. This has been your host, Jerry Wan. Thank you for tuning in to The Asian Americans. We'll see you next time.